If you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalms chapter 2 can be found in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I believe on page 448. We're in a sermon series this summer on the first uh, 12 Psalms, and we're in our second installment this week, looking at God as our refuge. So Psalm 2, this is God's holy, authoritative word to us this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we take refuge in you this morning, knowing that we have no hope. We have no blessing. We have no truth apart from you. And so as we study your holy word now, would you help us to see Christ, that he is King and Lord of the earth, King and Lord of our lives. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege to go with my sons on a field trip to our state's capital in Montgomery. So I now feel like I'm a true Alabamian, having visited the state capitol and seen how it all works. Uh, the tour was fascinating. I enjoyed it as we toured all the government buildings. We got to visit the, the three branches of our state government, the most impressive uh, building being the judicial be, uh, building of our state Supreme Court. If you haven't been there, it is a, a beautifully and meticulously crafted uh, building. The, the biggest takeaway for me visiting our state's capital, uh, now that I have seen uh, the, the, the workings of our, our government, I have seen with my own eyes and know now there's a, a higher power that is, is governing and ruling our, our state and its laws. Having walked a few feet away from the governor's office, having been into the Senate chambers Having stood in the the room of the Supreme Court justices, I now have a a picture in my mind of how our state works, specifically how it governs. Well, here in Psalm 2 actually serves somewhat of the same purpose. Although none of us have visited the heavenly throne room of Almighty God, and none of us knows 
the mind of God and how he has decreed all things from eternity past, we have here in Psalm 2 a, a glimpse into this higher power that rules all things and the truth that governs our reality. That truth is this. There is a God in heaven, and he rules, and he reigns through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his King, our King. And those who know this King can rejoice and be glad. Those who do not serve him should be warned. As the Scripture says, his righteous judgment is quickly kindled. So one of the things that's important for us to understand as we read and interpret our Old Testament, especially as we get here into Psalm 2, if you've never read this or thought much about this before, it may seem strange to you, uh, some of the things that are said here. So when we're studying and reading the Old Testament and applying it, it's important to understand what the scholars call typology. Typology. The Old Testament is full of biblical typology. Biblical typology is how we understand the Old Testament in light of the the New Testament. And so a a type, that's what we get the word typology, a type can be a person, it can be an event, it can even be an institution in the redemptive history of the Old Testament and all of God's history that that foreshadows a a greater reality or a, a greater thing in the New Testament. So therefore, we can understand uh, something in the Old Testament to be a copy or a type that signifies an even greater reality in the New Testament. So some examples of biblical typology would be the Lord Jesus Christ being the greater Adam. He's a type. Uh, The New Testament church being the, the greater Israel. Or Jesus being the better mediator than that of Moses, who we read about earlier. There are all types of typology that we find in the Old Testament that find their greater meaning in the New Testament. And so here in Psalm 2, we have a very prominent form of typology. Most scholars believe that Psalm 2 was composed by King David. And so he is the great king that God had set over his people Israel uh, to, to rule his people in his place over that kingdom. And this psalm certainly is somewhat about his reign and his life on earth, but really what it's doing, Psalm 2, is foreshadowing and prefiguring a greater king, a more permanent king, a righteous king, an everlasting king, the Messiah. That's what the anointed one here is. This psalm is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 2 is rightly called a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm because it's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. Here in the Old Testament, we find Jesus. So in other words, we're to read and understand this psalm being a great and glorious prophecy respecting our Lord Jesus Christ, the old scholar William Plummer says. So it's not a stretch for us as we, as we read and interpret and understand our Bibles to see this. All we have to do is to look back into 2 Samuel chapter 7 where we see that Yahweh God has called uh, his king, David, 
to be the king over his people, Israel. And his kingdom has a special blessing, a covenant promise attached to it, where God tells David, there's going to be a king to sit on your throne who will be forever, who will be an eternal king. Who would that king be in the line of David? Of course, we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. And so as we read this psalm, we need to understand, as we do of all of the scripture, this is pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to the king. It's a psalm about the Messiah. And it's very fitting that this is the second psalm in the Psalter. Many, again, scholars believe that Psalms 1 and 2 really serve as kind of an introduction to the entire Psalter, to all 150 psalms. And so in Psalm 1 that we studied last week, we saw that the way to be truly blessed, the way to know true happiness, is to be in the congregation of the righteous, to follow the Lord righteously. And here Psalm 2, again, it tells us what, again, the most important thing in history and certainly the most important thing in all of life is that there is a king. And this king is to be worshipped. And you will be blessed if you take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. That's the message of Psalm 2. And so we're going to view this message from several different angles as we look at the four stanzas of this psalm. The the first is a view from earth. Then we have a, a view in the second stanza from heaven. The third stanza, a view from all eternity. And then fourthly, a, a view from the right here and now. So look at that first stanza Psalms in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. We have a kind of a view from earth. This is what's going on in our world. Psalm 2 gives for us the world, not as we would like to see it, but the world for the way it actually is. And so when you read these verses, you see that the world is actually a hostile place. The world is fallen. The world is sinful. Specifically, the psalm says that the world is hostile toward the true and living God and toward the things of God. You may look back there in Psalm 1-1 where we see this picture of a blessed man who doesn't do these things, this blessed man who doesn't follow these sinful, wicked ways because a wicked person is one who walks and stands and sits in the way of the wicked. But here in Psalm 2 in verses 1 through 3, we have this on a global scale here. We don't just have an individual sinful person. We have literally nations and, and governments and rulers who are conspiring ill will toward Yahweh God and his anointed one, that is the Messiah. And as the psalmist considers this hostility toward God, look at the very first question or very first word there in verse 1. Why? Why? Why is the world so sinful? Why do people and rulers act with such disdain and and hostility toward God? Do you ever wonder this for yourself? Do you ever ask this deep, penetrating question? It's one of the most important questions of all of life, right? Why? Why? The psalmist is not pondering the problem of evil and asking why, why does evil exist, why is there sin in the world? Rather, 
he sees this sin and this evil and this hostility toward God Almighty, the, the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer. Why, he says, why such contempt for the Lord? This is why the Psalms are really a great reality check for us. Because they describe for us the world as it actually is, not as we would like to see it. The truth is, and this is a hard truth to accept, this is a hard truth to even confess, the truth is that the world hates God. And the world hates His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world hates those who follow Jesus. And Jesus actually told us this this is what would happen. He says in John 15, if the world hated him, then they would hate his followers also. That is the reality. We live in a world that is hostile to God, to the things of God, and to the people of God. And I think we need to let that truth absorb into our minds a little bit, especially here in America where we're not going to be persecuted as soon as we walk out the doors this morning. But every day, more and more, we're faced with more and more hostility. And the hostility goes something like this. It's not that, that you believe in God. People are fine with that. You can believe in whatever you want to. But where people in the world, the sinful world, gets a little testy with you and upset is when you seek to practice your religion in such a way that it starts to interfere with the accepted moralities of our culture. So if your view of life or your view of marriage or your view of anything in the realm of politics and social justice, if it interferes with what the world's doctrine is, then you ought to keep that to yourself is what the sinful world may say. This is something we need to think about and ponder in our day and age. Are we willing to believe? Are we willing to stand up for the things of God, knowing that it would be hostile to the world? The truth is we are all sinful. The world is sinful. And mankind's rebellion is best summarized in verse 3 there. Look, look at that closely. What is that saying? Basically, we do everything we can to get away from God and the things of God. We want to tear off these cords. We want to get away from these bonds that is restricting us. And we want to follow our own sinful ways. The world is a sinful place because our hearts are sinful. And so what does the Lord God think about our sinful condition? What does he have to say to this world that we live in? And that brings us to the next stanza where we find a view from heaven. Verses 4 through 6. Though down here on earth, things can be pretty pitiful and wrong and sinful, there is a greater reality that we need to hold on to. There is a greater truth that we need to seek. And the greater reality is this, is at the center of all Christian hope, it is this, that God is in heaven, and he rules, and he reigns, and he gets the laugh, last laugh. Verse 3, he who sits in the heaven laughs. It is God who's in control. This is good news because although at times it seems like sin is free 
and, and, and does whatever it wants, and governments pass laws to oppose Christian freedom, all the things will be done to try to shut down the message of the gospel. God is not phased by these overtures. He's not. God cannot be thwarted by our sinful rebellion. The God of Psalm 2 here is indeed the God of the whole Bible. He is Yahweh God. He is the Lord God Almighty, the the Lord of armies. He is not ambivalent. He's not apathetic to the affairs of our world. In fact, he, he hates the wrong that is done. He hates the sin that occurs. So much so that in verse Five there, it says, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Essentially, what the psalmist is trying to portray here is that the Lord's white, hot, holy anger is burning against sin. Though it may be refrained for a time now, it is coming. The Lord laughs at sinful overtures against him. Think of the Philistines sending their mighty warrior Goliath against Israel, against God's people, to ridicule them. They thought they were something special. They thought they could just wipe out and conquer God's people. But how did God laugh at their attempts? He sent a little shepherd boy with a slingshot to take out the mighty warrior Goliath. Who got the last laugh in that story? This is what Yahweh God thinks about those who oppose him, those who try to rid themselves of his control and declare themselves to be their own God. The Lord laughs. The Lord laughs because there is a king, a king whom he has set on his holy hill, a king who rules and who reigns. He is the one who God has placed on the throne and said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. A verse that is quoted five or six times in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus' reign. This is such a good word for us. It's the same message that we studied some months back in Revelation chapter 4. The reality is that there's a, a king. There is a, a king on his throne who is, who is worthy, who is holy, who is mighty, who is eternal. He is the Lord Jesus. He's to be worshipped and adored. And this is why we ask and we pray to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look to our King, our Savior, our ruler, our friend, our Lord. We need to fix our eyes on the one who is seated on his throne. Perhaps that's the only way to make sense of the sinful world that we live in. Perhaps that's all we can do when we get down and depressed about the sinful world that we're in. Dale Ralph Davis says, sometimes that, will all, that, can, that is all that can keep a Christian sane, is that we look to Jesus seated on his throne. You know, in America, we don't really know what to do with a king. We don't have kings. We started without kings. We'll probably never have a king. We long ago rejected the idea that there should be one person who should be the judge, the lawgiver, and the lawmaker, and the law enforcer. But the Bible tells us that to know the king and the head of the church 
is the most glorious blessing for us. To him all majesty ascribe. Fix our eyes upon Jesus, the king. He's the ruler of all. He's the one whom God has set on the throne and who rules and who reigns. And that's the next view we need to see here in verses 7 through 9, the third stanza, a view from all eternity. This next stanza takes us into a reality, into a, into a realm that exists in all of eternity, eternity that's outside of time and space. It's, it's beyond anything we can see and comprehend. We get a glimpse into the inner workings of the Holy Trinity, and here God decrees that his only begotten son will be the king with great dominion and power forever and ever. And so verse 7 through 9 is a decree from the Lord God Almighty. The decree is that his son will be ruler over the ends of the earth, and he will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, with great force, with great power, He will be king and ruler of all. This decree is, in fact, the mandate from God Almighty that now governs the reality that we live in, the truth that we need to absorb right now in our minds that Jesus will reign and does reign because God has willed it. He has decreed it. Again, Dale Ralph Davis helps us put this in perspective. He says, The certainty of this decree needs to infect your world and life view. It should color the way you look at politics and world conditions. You may not know what to make of them always, but you know where history is headed. You know what the decree is and how it will control and shape everything. It's what keeps God's people glued together during this present age. So I ask you, is this your world and life view? That Jesus reigns? That he is king whom God has decreed to be ruler over the ends of the earth? Does this govern the way that you think about your life and about the world? If not, what is it that shapes your worldview? What is it that you think about? What is it that you put your hope and your trust in to to help you make sense of life and reality? I think for far too many of us, it's the daily news. Now that we have access, instantaneous access, we can read news incessantly all day long, every day, every hour, every minute. So much so that we're letting the daily news dictate our our mood and dictate the reality that we live in. What about social media? Are you one of those who is incessantly looking at social media all the time? So much so that you're letting what you see on social media Determine your mood, determine your reality. What other people are doing or what other people are saying about you, determine your outlook on life. Is that what you are looking to for value, for meaning, for purpose? Believers in Jesus Christ do not look to these things for meaning. 
We don't, in, in, we don't obsess over these things and try to determine what in the world God is doing. The truth is right here in front of us in Scripture. We look to the King, the Son of God, the ruler of the ends of the earth. He is in control. He is the King. But then we have this last stanza, verses 10 through 12, where we have a a view of the right here and now. Least we miss the whole point of this psalm. It's all nicely packaged for us in this remaining stanza, verses 10 through 12. Here it is, verse 10. Do you want wisdom? Do you want to know what is wise? Listen up. Here it comes. The truth is about to hear, hit you squarely between the eyes. Listen up, kings. Listen up, rulers. Listen up, all people of the earth. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let me just remind you as you look there in your English Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, that is referring to the proper name of God, Yahweh God. The God of the Bible, serve him with fear, rejoice with trembling. Elsewhere, it's stated, for instance, in Deuteronomy 13, 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. I love verse 11. I, I think go home and memorize this, talk about this at lunch. This is the Christian life in one way, put in a nice little bow. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. This is our calling. This is what the Christian life is all about. We are to reverently fear, worship, serve the Lord, and to rejoice because He is in control. Verse 12. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. We don't go around kissing each other like some other cultures do. But it's not uncommon in our world that kissing is a sign of loyalty, maybe even submission and reverence. It's performed in many other cultures. And so what the psalmist is saying here, we kiss the sun out of reverence, out of respect, out of honor. And there are two incentives for why we must do this here in verse 12. We need to worship the king. We need to kiss the son. We need to, to bow before him, serve him, acknowledge him, adore him, worship him. Because if we don't, you might perish in his holy anger. He is the king. He has the right to do away with unrighteousness and wickedness in those who do not serve him. That is the negative incentive there, but there is the positive one. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We want our lives to be about the Son. We want our lives to be all about Jesus because this is where great joy and great blessing is promised. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son, the King the Lord Jesus Christ. 
refuge in the sun. That is what this psalm is about. We find refuge. We find meaning. We find purpose. We make sense of life in God the Son, the King, the Messiah, the Holy One whom God has placed over our lives and over His world. Bow the knee and kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we ask your forgiveness where we have put other things, other people, other circumstances before you. You are the King. Jesus is the Lord and the giver of life. So Lord, help us to see him as the ruler of all things. He is over his church, over this world. He is the one whom you have said You are my only begotten son. And how marvelous, how wonderful it is that you sent him not only to be king, but to be Messiah, Savior, to die for us so that we may live and reign forever with him. We praise you and we thank you for that. In his holy name we pray, amen.